1: They load up these kids and old people and people in between who are going to be hostages from age under two to over nine years old. They load them up into Jeeps and onto the backs of motorcycles, and they drive back through the same holes they made 14 or 16 or 18 hours later that are still unattended by the IDF.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, special edition October 10th, 2023. This morning, I woke up and connected with my old friend, Noah Efron, about the weekend's events in Israel. Noah is a professor at Bar Ilan University. He is a prolific essayist and writer, and he is the host of The Promised Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts on Israeli life, politics, and culture. In an interview punctuated twice by missile attacks, we discussed what had happened over the weekend, the magnitude and horror of the Hamas attack, the impact on Israeli society and the coming Israeli response in Gaza. We talked about the weird interregnum between the violence over the weekend and the violence that's to come and how quiet things are right now. We talked about whether Israeli society is coming together or whether it is coming apart. And we talked about the implications of Hamas holding many hostages for the way the war is going to play out, and a lot of other things. It's the Lawfare Podcast Special Edition, Noah Efron, on the awful quiet of this moment. So, Noah, I want you to start just by telling me what happened to you saturday morning when when did you know something was happening and what happened?
1: I was awakened at about seven in the morning, maybe a little bit before by sirens here in Tel Aviv, which was shocking and um so I quickly got up and got dressed and dragged the dog out to the stairwell as we do because we do not have a fortified room in our apartment in our old building that was built in 1936. But we do have very, very reinforced stairwells and um, sat there in the corner with the dog shivering as she has been the entire three days since and uh, the neighbors from one flight up with their dog sitting on the stairwell in front of me, and, and they began scrolling through their phones, and there was no real sign of anything except save for the fact that there were announcements on the news that there had been these sirens and that there were missiles being launched all up the coast as far north as Tel Aviv. So we were more or less the northern border of the range of these missiles. And so that's that's how I found out, and like a lot of people, including my neighbors upstairs, I figured that it was something that was going to pass almost immediately, an errant missile. Occasionally it happens that the Islamic Jihad launches missiles that, um, over the best judgment of Hamas, and usually those those kinds of firings are, last for one round and then they stop. And so, in every few months, it happens that we're sent to the stairwell, in my case, with a shivering dog. So that's how it began. And it really was a number of hours before it began to become clear that things were happening. I mean, my neighbors let me know, because under normal circumstances on Saturday and holiday, I, I don't have the phone on and I don't have the radio on. So they let me know that something was going on. And the initial reports were that there were terrorists in the Kibbutzim in the area of Gaza, which is also not a very unusual thing to hear. And then the reports were that there were some deaths. And then after that, it became clear, by now it's noon or one in the afternoon, it became clear that there was something that was different than any, something that we'd, anything that we'd seen before that was happening. And that the extent of this thing was much, much bigger than any of us had imagined or then past precedent led us to believe what was even possible. It was around that time when just as it was sinking in that this was something different and more serious and more horrid and more worrisome than anything that we'd experienced in the past, I got a call from my boy, from my son, who's in college and at USC and he had been, I mean, it was the middle of the night there. I don't know exactly why he was up, but he had been alerted to what was happening and he had started to get messages from his army unit and he had decided that he was gonna get on the first flight. And so he, he you know he wanted a credit card and wanted to to know what airline to use and he he booked a flight and made his way to the airport on a united flight that was canceled when he got there. And so he he booked a new flight on El Al, which was the, the only airline that was continuing to fly to Israel from the United States, which flew out the next day. So as the news was mounting and as it became more and more clear, and as the first of the horrendous, horrendous videos began to make it to social media, my son let me know that he was Dropping out of the semester, and he was uh, he was coming back to join his army unit, which frankly surprised me. I mean, I was still absorbing this; I was still coming to realize that this was something quite serious of, of an order of magnitude different than anything that I had known before. And so, the one of the one of the first ways that it it really hit me was that in twenty four hours or in forty eight hours there was certain to be a massive Israeli military response to this since then more than forty eight hours have have passed but and the the response hasn't come yet, but it will, and that my boy would be somehow involved in this as an infantry soldier, which he is and and then i like then the the full gravity and the full Terror. I'm embarrassed to say because it was already clear. They were already announcing at this time that 20 people had been killed. That's what they were saying on the news at around 1230 in the afternoon on Saturday. And every person, of course, is this universe of, I mean, it was just incomprehensible that as many as 20 people were killed on one morning. But what it took for me was to have the image of my own boy wearing a uniform, holding a gun, going into Gaza, and then then it be, began to become, like, desperately serious. And the news just kept coming and kept getting worse. I, I thought on Saturday that Saturday was the worst day of my life, and then... On Sunday, after you know, after most of the terrorists, though surprisingly, shockingly, not all of them had either retreated back to Gaza, some of them with hostages on motorcycles or in Jeeps, and some of them just on their own, or been killed in these Jewish settlements that they attacked outside of Gaza. Even then, there were still parts of kibbutzim that were in control of Hamas fighters on Sunday. But as that was beginning to die down, and as the IDF was beginning to gain control over that, then every few moments brought another story of someone who you'd met, someone who you knew, a a friend of a friend, the daughter of a of a colleague at the university the 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 then you know later Sunday, two more children of people at the university who were in the army, and you just started hearing these horrible stories and then seeing these these videos, which at first, I avoided looking at and then could not convince myself to avoid looking at and they were. They were, you know, videos of women being dragged by the hair into into jeeps and then being dragged by the hair out of the jeeps in Gaza in front of cheering crowds, and uh, and dead bodies being paraded through the streets and and piles of bodies in Kibbutzim, and so that's uh, that's how Saturday was leading into to Sunday. And that's been how it's been like until now as well, where it's just been a steady stream of, of stories. And I think that I, because I did not grow up here and I do not have a big family here or really very much of a family at all, and because my wife did not grow up here and she doesn't have very much of a big family, I think that I probably know only a fraction as many people or am connected to only a fraction as many people as most people here, but even still just story after story after story of a of that person I was on the panel with last year. Well, he's not here, or that woman who was the who I grew up with in in my youth group, my Jewish youth group who moved to Israel, or the head of that peace group that I'm involved with um or the the chairperson of the board of a think tank that I was involved with just one story after another of people whose hands you know I've shaken and whose rooms I've been in and who we've exchanged photos of our kids or our parents and that's the way that these days have been
0: wow all right um you wrote I thought one of the most beautiful pieces that has been published in the Times of Israel on Sunday, I think, time is blurs together a little bit, about the interregnum that we are in between the violence at the attack of Saturday and the major Israeli operation that's coming. You have alluded to that interregnum earlier today as well there were a set of things that you wanted to say before the second wave of of violence and horror begins what are they what were the what was the and why is it urgent to say it now as opposed to you know 3 days from now when there's a major israeli ground operation in gaza
1: well, thanks for the kind word about what I wrote about this interregnum, as you say it's exceedingly odd. It feels as though the biggest thing that any of us can remember that I can remember it just happened, and as we're trying to grasp that, you can already feel coming something that is likely to be even bigger and at this moment it's really quiet. I mean it's really quiet metaphorically, but it's also really quiet literally. So this morning I took my boy to the to his army base and the roads were empty and the roads are never empty in the middle of Israel in the middle of the week. And the first day after, on Sunday, I went out for a walk, even though we were supposed to be staying near our homes, and everything was closed, and save for on Yom Kippur and on the evening of Memorial Day for the you know fallen of Israel's soldiers. Except for those two days, then Tel Aviv is never quiet things are never closed here there's never a moment where and nobody had issued an order there were there were no instructions that stores should be closed or or that coffee i i don't know if you hear the um well the the sirens are going off so um i I guess i I will let you go
0: (laughs) uh i will keep the line open and um uh go be safe and uh we'll be here when you get back
1: excellent Lucy, come.
0: All right. Uh, first of all, what happened during the air raid? Or during during the, this is now seven, ten minutes later.
1: What happened? Right. Well, the dog was terrified and she was shaking. We went out into the hallway as we do and met with the neighbors and their dog as we do. And then uh, we heard the explosion of what, could be a patriot missile or um an iron dome kind of missile or it could be a rocket from gaza we don't know and the news has not yet reported in detail specifically where it was fired upon but the uh, the sirens here in tel aviv are very geographically delimited it's really only if it's in your neighborhood that you hear a siren very often we hear sirens from one neighborhood over so something must have happened, but we won't know for a little bit what it was.
0: Mm-hmm. So you were talking about the interregnum and how quiet it is, and how weirdly quiet it is, and
1: yes, just how odd because it, it's so fraught, it's so pregnant, both with obviously with meaning, but also with foreboding and. During this odd time, it is possible to see things that are probably always there, that are definitely always there, but that we almost never see. This attack comes, obviously, after 10 months of the most fierce division that Israel, political division that Israel has ever experienced as everyone knows, and most of the past 10 months, we have been in the streets screaming, uh, people who who view the world as I do screaming at at the government and trying to stop the judicial reform and other people screaming at the people screaming at the government. But in any instance, the the feeling that the society is being torn asunder and that there's some fundamental rift and that we do not share values and we do not share a vision of what the state should be and we do not even anymore share a whole lot of concern one side for the other, that feeling which we've lived with and which has grown for the last 10 months is suddenly belied in a moment like this interregnum because for one thing what you see immediately is how desperately everyone cares for the victims and about the victims so some of the most moving coverage of this of these attacks i found on uh, an ultra orthodox Website that I like to go to to try to understand how they see the world, and the the way that they describe the the murders of these people who are really quite in every way on the other side of whatever political and cultural and social divides the country has. People just to be
0: to be clear for people who don't know the the kibbutzim around Gaza are kind of left very secular and a lot of the victims are uh, d- these are disproportionately secular people and the uh i think the proportion of uh, ultra orthodox that have been killed in this is quite small is that is that fair
1: yes it it could well be that there have been no ultra orthodox people killed though there have been religious soldiers who have been killed the head of the khatibata Hanachal, my my own sons infantry unit was killed and he he has a a keep on his head he's religious and probably right wing for all i know but the outpouring of grief has been universal and completely undifferentiated i mean to be to be really crass about it the 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 thousand people who were killed are almost all of them are the kinds of people who you would see on a protest at a protest on a saturday night they're almost all leftist they're almost all secular and the outpouring of grief among the the people who have a real brief against these protester sorts has been huge so immediately you 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 see that underneath the the stratum of our divisions which is which is huge and the divisions are gaping and they're real underneath that there is some some strait or stratum of of of, of identification of, of affinity between between people that we just have not seen a sign of for the past 10 months and soon and then it's everywhere and then immediately thereafter i mean a funny thing is happening all over the country and in tel aviv maybe more than anywhere today and you know begin beginning yesterday where everyone is going out of their mind seeking ways to volunteer. There are people who are out driving their car in hope of finding someone who needs to get somewhere. I mean, I think that they have in their minds that maybe there's some some reserve soldier who needs to get to his unit and they'll drive them there. But also maybe there's some... There's some kid in Tel Aviv who needs to go and join their family who are now sitting Shiva over the people who are murdered in the south near Gaza, and they will drive them there too. I just spoke with someone who, who was, he was so excited that he had, he had found someone in, in fact, a a reserve soldier who needed to join up with his unit way up north in the Golan. And this was here and I think that it was in Ranana, Kfar Saba, where he picked him up and he was so happy that he had found this person who need, who desperately needed a three hour drive. So he drove him three hours and then drove back this one person just because, and he, he, he was self aware about it as most of the people are. It's like, obviously I'm doing this more for me than I am for anyone else, but the streets are filled with people. Yesterday I went to a place where they're, where they're packing meals to bring to soldiers who, between you and me, probably don't need the meals, and to bring to families from these settlements in the south who have been moved to various places around the country who probably don't need these Just meals. Just to be
0: clear, when 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 you say settlements, you don't mean you know West Bank settlements outside the Green Line. You mean little towns, little kibbutz, little agricultural little settlements. In. That's yep. right.
1: Some of them kibbutzim, you know, socialists. Some of them moshavim, cooperative settlements, as they're called here. But yes, they're all, all of the places that were attacked are all within the green line. And I i think that they're all uncontroversially part of Israel. So there are, there. Are, I went to the place where they're packing meals. And in addition to the fact that there were 100 Eritrean refugees who had come, all dressed in the same blue, t- blue T-shirt uh, to show their solidarity and to work in whatever way they could. And they, they, as I got there, they were holding a moment of silence for the victims and they were there to help. Basically, it was one volunteer like asking another volunteer, please, please, is there something that I can do? And the streets are filled with people who are just trying to help someone and there's something almost comical about that, but there's something exceedingly beautiful. But besides the judgment, there's just something that I think illuminates or illustrates a truth about this society that we have not seen for a long time, the degree to which people are committed one to the other. So what I, I wrote in that little essay is that if Israelis have... A genius. It's not for high tech, and it's not for for military daring do, or for any of the things that we often present ourselves as being particularly excellent in, right or wrong. the The only genius that I really consistently find here is a genius for fellowship and a genius for empathy, a genius for looking at other people and saying, "Ah, yes, this is this is who." you know, that person is somehow connected to me and I must help that person. And so when I picked up the boy at the air, my boy at the airport, he said, oh, I'm so glad that you, you came because I realized I have no currency and I don't have a credit card. And I said, you know, today you could just say, I came back, I flew back to be here now, but I don't have 200 chequels for a cab. And you would have people fighting one another to give you that money. And I think that very, very soon after this interregnum, it will be gone entirely. And it will be gone because Israel's response is going to be overpowering and it's going to be Horrible in some ways, and I use that word as a description of the emotion that it will produce not not a value judgment because i'll I'll wait to see what Israel does before I judge it, but there will be there will be just picture after picture of people who are homeless and worse, and we will receive story after story of soldiers, our own soldiers who have died, and people will be judging every move that the army makes and every move that the government makes. Is it humane or inhumane? Is it effective or ineffective? Is it too weak and they will be screaming one at the other. They will be dissatisfied. They will be angry. And then within the country as well, it will not be long before, and in fact, we've already begun to see some of this before, some people in the government say, you know, the reason why Hamas launched a 1,000 people with handheld rockets and with automatic guns to go house to house and murder children and their parents is because those left-wingers who are protesting every week gave them the idea that we are weak. And there will be people on the other side who will say the, the only reason why, this, why Hamas felt empowered to do what it did is because Benjamin Netanyahu is heedless of anything that does not directly involve saving his own political career and keeping him out of jail and that the religious members of the coalition parties in the coalition are concerned only with advancing their agenda of keeping secular israelis from being able to live the lives that they want to live the way that they want to live be they queer or be they straight it's 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 going to happen you know it's going to happen immediately and then this moment will be forgotten it will be hard to conjure and i just wanted to stick a pin in it for one second and say this stuff too is is there it's always there and just it it will be helpful maybe it will be comforting to remember when in a few days or in a few weeks when it's all yelling and it's all ambivalence and it's all harsh judgments of anyone who does not see the world exactly the way that you do or or act in the world exactly the way that you do when that that moment comes as it is just about to do it would be helpful to have some memory of the fact that at some level deep down we we remain deeply connected how those two things fit together, and how they will fit together, and whether and whether the 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 bellicosity, uh, the 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 rage, the anger at one another, and the anger of the world at Israel and Israel at the world won't overwhelm in the long run the fellow feeling that we're seeing so clearly and so beautifully now. I don't know, but I do I do believe that what we're seeing now is so extraordinary an expression of affinity, of love, of empathy, of ability to care for people who are strangers, of of a wish only to make a very, very broken world a little bit better. It's so powerful what we're seeing now that I myself am entirely persuaded that that is the, that is the foundation. That's what's underneath the earth that all that other stuff it rests upon and that it will be there and that it will also by the way i think i i think that it will be our greatest political asset in the long run i mean uh, this it sounds it sounds ridiculous to say this now but i will say it anyway when it finally comes as i still believe it finally will come that there will be peace between palestinians and and jews in this piece of the land And also that there will be a state where Palestinians are are full participants and full partners, either a Palestinian state, which is what I hope, or a state that includes both Jews and Palestinians on the entire land, which would be okay as well. That When that happens, it will happen because that same ability to feel affinity that is our genius here will be applied as well to to Palestinians and you can see you can you can it it's never the case that that possibility is entirely absent as one of the big stories over the course of yesterday was about the driver at this rave party where where hundreds of people were murdered hundreds of young people and the story is about the The driver of a bus, a a Druze driver, who was under fire but refused to drive away himself until he packed the bus with as many people as possible, and then kept stopping on the side of the road to collect himself to go out and collect wounded people and bring them into the bus as people were firing on them. And the reason why, and there are a lot of stories of that magnitude of heroism in an event as big as this. You know, it was it was twenty settlements that were attacked. But the reason why this was so important was because so many people wanted wanted to imagine the future in terms of a present in which a Palestinian-Israeli would risk his own life over and over and over again to save the lives of Jewish-Israelis, and it mattered to people. And the reason why it matters to people is because I think that a lot of us feel as though all of this will will end only when of course this is a necessary but not a sufficient condition but only when we do find a way to expand this genius this kind of cultural national genius we have for affinity to include palestinians and others and and i think that that will happen but this is of course a huge setback to the possibility of any of those fellow feelings really developing anytime soon when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door
0: it's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So I want to ask you about another aspect of your piece, which was the application of this idea, uh, through the lens of this fervent identification with the families of people whose relatives are, are hostages, Israel has, uh, in a way that is hard to understand for Americans, turns itself upside down over individual people held captive in Gaza or or uh, held hostage or captured anywhere. It, it really. This, the salience of the political issue of a hostage is very hard to overstate in Israeli society. And here you have a situation where there's 150 of them, most of them civilians, a lot of them uh, elderly or children, or some of them very small children, and I like you, expect uh, an Israeli ground operation that will be huge. But I'm actually puzzled how a society like Israel does that, given the constraint of the intense empathy that people have with people whose family members are being held. and, and, And of course, Hamas knows this and knows how to play it, they're threatening to kill individual hostages in response to individual targeting uh, operations. How does the issue of hostages play in this, and at both a high strategic level, but also at just the emotional level at which uh, Israelis engage it?
1: Well, that's an, an excellent question, and it's a diabolical situation, obviously. I think that what makes it possible to go forward at all in this situation is the fact that despite there being many reasons why this shouldn't be so, and despite the fact that there's evidence that it's becoming less so, I think that Israelis still do, to a surprising degree, trust Their, if not their political leaders in a political mode, they trust their military leaders, including politicians, when they're in a military mode. And I think that if the generals come to the conclusion that there's no way of saving the lives of the hostages by waiting and negotiating and that their best chance the best chance of the hostages which of course is a terribly slim chance in any case is is to attack and to go from house to house and to find these people then i think that israelis will accept that i mean right right now there's there are efforts underway as i know you know and the you know, the kuwaitis i think suggested or proposed that there be an immediate prisoner exchange for the women and girls who are being held in gaza i think it was the qataris oh i'm sorry the qataris yes in exchange in exchange for for women who are and children who are being held under administrative detention and in jails in Israel which was rejected by Hamas and um in, and is un- certainly unlikely to go forward as it was but i think that that here in israel there's great skepticism that something like that will be possible at the moment i, I people still seem to believe that, or and one hears military experts say this on the radio and television these days, that it may be that Hamas will be persuaded that holding so many hostages is more of a liability than it is of an asset to them. And so maybe some kind of deal can be worked out quite quickly. But I think that in answer to your specific question, what will allow Israel to to go forward is experts saying credibly that going forward with a ground attack is actually the best chance to save hostages, which I think is probably a code for saying without ever saying, because no one could let these words leave their lips, that those hostages are mostly going to die in any case so i I, th- I think that's i think that's how it could happen that that tomorrow or the next day or the day after that there's a massive ground incursion into gaza hamas announces that they have killed all of the hostages or most of the hostages and the israeli populace does not immediately revolt against their own leaders for having brought this disaster i think that were that to happen then people would come to the conclusion that it was inevitable and nothing could be done to stop it. So
0: one of the interesting countervailing factors in cutting against your narrative of the degree of coming together is the concurrent uh, rage being directed by some of the people who were escaped from the Southern communities at the political leadership. Uh, and some of this is they didn't stop it, they didn't anticipate it, a sort of uh, a familiar kind of post-9-11 kind of, you know, how did this intelligence failure happen? But some of it is um, a, a little bit more politically inflected than that, you know, accusing Netanyahu of uh, of having believed in sort of bulking up Hamas as a, as a means of counterbalance against the PA, a kind of sense that he, for all his tough talk, never really did anything about Hamas. What is the, uh, there's a kind of understanding in Israel that you don't do political accountability for something like this in the middle of things. Um, Golda Meir served out as prime minister of the 73 war, but Haaretz has been braying for Netanyahu's deposing in the middle of the thing. And so talk about the other, the side that's, the the world that's not coming together, but that, you know, Israeli political uh, uh, anger and demands are playing out even as the conflict ramps up.
1: Yes. Well, the the rage is is huge and it's real and it's not it's not just something that one hears from people who live in the south or who lost loved ones. It's something that's very very broad and my god is it understandable and justified. I mean, there there were there are things that are about what happened on Saturday that are Almost impossible to make sense of at the the most simple level. So you had, we all saw the video of the of the the bulldozer inside the Gaza Strip coming and knocking down a piece of the barrier between you know at the border of Gaza that divides Gaza from this area. Which barrier, by the way, costs billions. And we were told was absolutely safe because in the areas where it's fencing and not concrete walls, it's covered absolutely with sensors where j- within moments of being touched, there will be units of the army there to to defend the country. And we all saw the video of this this simple bulldozer, like the kind that you'd find at any construction site, ramming into the thing, creating a hole, and then we watched as hundreds of people, guns in the air, ran through that, which is unbelievable. Completely unaccosted by anyone from the IDF, and they continued to run for long minutes through that hole. Okay, so that's image one. Then they got to these settlements, and the army was nowhere. And then we all, over the course of Saturday, listened to the on the radio to the sounds of people begging on their phones, where is the army? We're here in this spot. We need, there are people outside our door. Come, come, come over and over again in all of these, in most of these 20 settlements and no one from the army showing up for hours. And then they load up these kids and old people and people in between who are going to be hostages From age under two to over 90 years old, they load them up into jeeps and onto the backs of motorcycles and they drive back through the same holes they made 14 or 16 or 18 hours later that are still unattended by the IDF. And so the questions that the rays that people feel and the questions that people are asking, like how could this happen in the Army, are, you know, that all makes complete sense. It's worth noting that. That kind of shock and disbelief and rage reflects two things at once. It reflects this enormous decline in in your faith in these institutions, like the IDF and like the government. But at the same time, it reflects an enormous fundamental faith in these institutions because all of us were 100% certain that this was impossible because how could this possibly happen because we had people people looking after us so if you didn't have
0: faith in the institution to begin with you wouldn't live within a literal stone's throw of the Gaza border
1: absolutely and these are the same people as i was saying before who politically are are opposed to this government and have been quite you know it's left leaning they think that this, that Netanyahu's government is basically illegitimate or certainly that its agenda is illegitimate and a real threat to democracy itself and they're protesters. And yet they went to sleep every night, you know, a few meters from their kids' bedrooms and they didn't have trouble falling asleep because they believed that they would be protected by this government and by this army. And you're right that there is a long standing tradition to keep political dissent at bay during the course of of wars or or widespread military actions and for the most part that is there but at the same time you're you're clearly right that there is this rage at the government and a feeling as though the the faith that that People had, of which I think a lot of us were unaware, of how much faith we had that we were fundamentally protected. That that faith is is really deeply, deeply shaken. So what that means is that probably in Israel there probably will be something like a national unity government. Probably, probably Benny Gantz and probably Avigdor Lieberman, two of the of the three biggest leaders of the opposition right now will form, will join with Netanyahu's government in some fashion or another. But when this ends, which will be in three weeks or three months and the dust begins to settle, that is when the, these, these political criticisms and this political rage will find full expression whether that means that this government will topple and there will be new elections or not is hard to say because this government has a majority that is not difficult to maintain for its full 5 years but there will be there will be investigations there will be reports the anger will grow the feeling that that Netanyahu and his government is responsible for these 1000 to 1200 to 1400 deaths we still don't know what the final number is will will grow and will translate itself into additional political energy and to political divides whether that means that the 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 the, the like fundamental affinity that i feel now Will cease to exist or not is an open question. I believe that all of this other stuff will continue to exist atop a fundamental agreement, and that it will not be destroyed by this. But, but who knows? this rage is going to be huge, and the the yom kippur war, like you brought up in that analogy, is I think in this particular regard about uh, the 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 vast feeling of having been trade be been betrayed by a government that proved incompetent and heedless um, in that way were were a little bit similar, were quite a bit similar to the way that Israelis felt in after the 1973 war. It waited until after the war and then there was an election after the 1973 war and the labor government won again and Meir was still prime minister. And only then did the the feeling that this that this government, that these people have got to pay and they've got to go, grew. And that's what led to Menachem Begin being elected. And for the first time in, in Israel's history, in the first time after 30 years, a non-socialist government being elected. And I suspect that something like that will happen to the Netanyahu government as well, partly as a result of this. I, I, I suspect that Netanyahu himself is quite aware of that. And whether he can hold together his government for the f- for the three and a half years that it has left and only then pay the price or whether he'll need to pay it sooner is is an open question, but it's a question that we won't even really begin seriously to address until um, until my son is back at California going to college again
0: before we break, uh, I want to ask you about the Palestinian side you've alluded to the deferral of the desire to extend the sense of empathy, this, this as a setback to that. You've uh, also stated correctly the point that there's going to be a major operation. And we all know that a lot of Palestinians are going to get killed in that operation, including a lot of Palestinian civilians. Uh, it's simply impossible to operate if in Gaza without major civilian impact. I, I'm curious for your reflections on on that. the The combination of the knowledge that that's going to happen, the belief I assume that that is a necessary and legitimate response, but also the desire to extend the kind of empathy that the bus driver had with victims in an ongoing way and the sense of of his inclusion in the society that he's within the circle of empathy how do you square that circle
1: yeah that's in the long run that's the biggest of the questions and probably the most important and everything that you said is true and it's even worse than that because as as my friend i think our friend miriam Herslag, who runs the uh, the the opinions page at the times of israel said when she watched those videos she felt as though there was something medieval going on this horde this vast number of people running over the border and then running into these settlements and going door to door and 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 just literally one by one, murdering everyone they saw, women, children. There are are very horrible stories that I didn't mention at that rave of, of rape, systematic rape of the women before they were murdered as well. And a lot of Israelis watching that, I think, feel as though an image that they had of Palestinians that they have spent years trying to eradicate in themselves as somehow being less humane, less decent, less concerned with human life and human dignity than we are as a cultural matter it's in you know this this image that is like so horrible and so complicated that they're somehow less civilized than Westerners are. That image was confirmed over and over and over again in this way, in the most powerful way. And so that you hear this. Discourse that used to exist when I first came to the country in the nineteen eighties, people would talk about Palestinian culture that way, say, Look, you don't understand these people you know i I know you know I grew up in Morocco. I know what these people are like they're they're vicious they're they'll smile at you and then they 'll cut your throat. These kinds of things used to be said quite often. I think they were commonly believed, and then over the years they've become I think, less widely believed. Certainly, it's become something that one no longer says out loud. But I think that that now you hear it again, people saying, aha, uh-huh, what we said 40 years ago, what we've always said, what we've always known in our heart of hearts is true. And because th- because of the enormous power, because for you know if 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 there were you know, say we don't know what the numbers will be but say 1200 people were murdered on that morning and throw in however many of the hostages end up being murdered and each of those people is a close friend or or cousin of another 100 people or 1000 people then there there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people for whom that image of the people running through the hole in the fence with screaming and then going into the into these you know, beautiful beautiful kibbutzim and moshavim and bursting into the doors and and you know shooting as one case you know, shot uh, a grandmother and then took a picture on the grandmother's own phone and uploaded it trouble to upload the picture of the of the the dead bleeding grandmother to her own Facebook page so that all of her facebook friends and family would see her dead on her own facebook page those images are going to be like attached, uh, attached to the most visceral memories of the worst day of anyone's life forever until we all die off and that is makes all of this that so much harder the fact that so many of the, you know, so many that a good number, dozens and dozens and dozens of of like major peace activists that one of the heads of women wage peace, this woman Vivian Silver, this lo- lovely, lovely woman Vivian Silver, who devoted her life to try to, to build deeper human connections between Gaza and her own settlements outside of Gaza. She's now a hostage in She's probably 70 years old and she's a hostage in, in Gaza. The, all these images are just going to be there and they're going to be knocking around and they're going to make it that much harder to to build trust again. And then the opposite is what you said is, is entirely true. I mean, there are going to be, I don't know what it's going to look like, but there are, there are going to be Palestinian parents, Gazan parents who will remember the day tomorrow or a week from now or or 3 weeks from now is the day when when their beautiful daughter was murdered and there'll be the beautiful daughters who remember it who remember it as a day when their parents were murdered by the israelis and that's and that is inevitable in answer to your your question i i personally don't know i don't necessarily think that I, i'm think that it's justified i mean uh, the, I, I do think it's inevitable. I do think that in order to get rid of Hamas, many, many, many Palestinian civilians are going to have to die. But And I think that some of those civilians are not exactly innocent. They're implicated. But I think some of those civilians are exactly innocent or worse. They're people who have grown up as victims, miserated by their circumstances. They did nothing to create, who only want to live lives of quiet or loud decency, and they are going to to suffer terribly. And I don't know if that's a price that is worth paying to to get rid of Hamas or not. So yes, that that is going to happen, and it is going to be that much worse on both sides. And it makes it that much harder to imagine the moment when each side manages to extend its empathy to the other side. But I do think that always the the potential for that is there and I do think that when when it finally happens in a small number of years or a very big number of years then that's the only way that it it can happen is by people understanding that uh that we've all suffered and I know that you you know and have probably been to those really moving memorial ceremonies on memorial day where where you know 5000 people come to celebrate or to mark or to memorialize the the loved ones that they've lost and and there's no division between the israelis who have been killed in this conflict and the palestinians who have been killed in this conflict and the ceremony is in in he- hebrew praying to a jewish god and in arabic praying to a a muslim god and a christian god and that's that's the only way that this thing ends, but that end point has just been moved that much further by this horrible day and three days that we've had and the horrible week that we're going to have and month and maybe three months that we're going to have with all the suffering that it's going to bring that's just going to last for lifetimes that stretch long beyond my own. On that
0: relentlessly upbeat note, we're going to uh, uh, leave it there. Uh, Noah Efron, you're a great American and a great Israeli. Stay safe. Uh, May your boys stay safe and uh, keep in touch. And uh, we're sending love.
1: Thank you, Ben. It was good to talk to you, as it always is.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. I did it myself. Hope, uh, hope it sounded okay. You are our publicity department, so tweet the Lawfare Podcast. Share us, particularly an episode like this. No one else is bringing you content like this. Send it to everybody you've ever met. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the redoubtable Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it.